Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about different indexing strategies. Now, by now, if you've been listening to any of my podcasts or reading my blogs or even my books, you would know by now that I'm a big fan of rules-based investing, uh, otherwise often referred to as index investing. Uh, it's really, uh, uh, I guess it's rooted uh, in evidence-based investing, that is, used rules-based strategies that have historic data that demonstrates that if we invest or adopt that methodology that will achieve the returns that we desire, which is very distinct uh, from active funds management, which is uh, investing or, or engaging individuals uh, to invest on our behalf to make uh, very subjective decisions and take positions uh, within markets on the hope that they can produce better returns. Uh, so over the last uh, decade or longer, there's been a mass exodus out of active funds management uh, into index strategies in the US Less so in Australia because institutions, particularly the large super funds, have been uh, less attracted to it and there's some um, conflicts of interest of why they uh, may not uh, really want to adopt uh, an index methodology, mostly rooted around uh, the, that it would probably mean that they need less staff. Anyway, put that aside, uh, according to Morningstar in the US last calendar year, 2019, about 204 uh, US million dollars uh, was redeemed net from active funds management. So obviously that there's uh, applications, so investments and then redemptions. Uh, they lost 200 odd million dollars uh, and index funds picked up 162 million dollars. So really that, that's been a, a funds flow uh, that's been occurring uh, each year for more than 10 years and the pool of index funds, sorry, active funds, continues to decline and new money is attracted to uh, the index market and for good reason because uh, index funds in the long run are proven to produce better returns uh, and they have uh, that the fees that they charge uh, can be substantially lower than active fund managers and, and fees impact your risk right so if you have a fund with a very high fee uh, that exhibits, in my view, more risk because you really need to make sure that fund's going to give you uh, a lot bigger return to offset the fees that you pay. Uh, and obviously the risk is that they they um, uh, they may not. Uh, but of course, all index uh, strategies have different pros and cons. And whilst traditional market cap indexing has outperformed in the long run, it does have some shortcomings, particularly in markets that are otherwise, that are other than bull markets. So certainly leading up to the coronavirus, we were certainly in a bull market in Australia and the US, US arguably longer than uh, we have. Uh, and in those markets, uh, traditional market cap indexing works perfectly well. Uh, but the problem is uh, it doesn't work as well in, uh, in other markets and I believe that um, investors would be well advised to employ a, a diversified set of indexing methodologies and not just traditional market cap indexing. So let's just remind ourselves about the stats because I've written about this previously and there's something that called the SPIVA report, which you can Google. Uh, it's run by S&P Dow Jones, uh, which is index provider. 
uh, and they uh, update the active versus index uh, stats uh, every six months, I think it is, uh, for different geographical markets around the world. Uh, and in the last uh, 15 years, uh, the stats are that only 16% of active fund managers beat the index. Uh, and in the US over the same period, 11%. Uh, so really, um, that means uh, 84% of active fund managers failed to actually beat the index over that period of time. However, it's important to note it's not the same 16%, right? That the, the, the winners, the, the active fund managers that actually beat the market... Um, will change every single year, uh, and uh, and the persistence of outperformance um, isn't uh, isn't significant. And in fact, today S and P Dow Jones re- released their persistence report, which uh, shows that how many uh, you know uh, that that uh, active fund managers rarely produce uh, consecutively good years. Uh, and so, in that data in 2015, so we go back five years ago there was 81 fund managers that were in the top quartile of performance. Uh, So the top quarter of performers, uh, now not all of them would have beaten the index, by the way, uh, but let's just say top quartile performers. Um, So that's in 2015, 81. By the time uh, 2016 came around, only 11 out of the 81 were still in the top quartile. Uh, A year after that, so 2017, only five out of the 81 were able to string three good years together in which they were in the top quartile. And remember, that top quartile doesn't necessarily mean that they beat the index. Um, they, they probably would have got pretty close to if not beating the index. So it shows that um, 16% beat the index over a very long period of time, that that 16% changes. In fact, that most fund managers only beat the index uh, one year in, uh, uh, for one year, not consistently. Uh, and so that's why, uh, as a rules-based strategy, it's not a very good. There's, there's not a lot of evidence that demonstrates employing active fund management is the right way to go. Uh, so let's talk about the different types of index strategies. And typically, I think that you can categorise index strategies into three categories. The first one is traditional market cap indexing, and that's the one that you're probably most familiar with. Uh, and it was really popularised by Vanguard since the the mid 70s. Now, traditional market cap indexing means that you invest in a particular index proportionately based on the value of each individual company compared to the value of the index as a whole. So, for example, for the ASX 200, which is the top 200 companies in Australia by value, uh, 8.2% of your money would go into CSL, 7.6% would go into CBA, and so forth. That's because... The value of CBA is 7.6% of the total index. Uh, and one of the criticisms is this index methodology is linked to price, the price of a company. And so as the price of a company goes up, uh, you have to invest more in that company because the index reweights. Uh, and as the price of the comp- a company goes down, you have to sell down that company. That, that doesn't always make sense to do so. So the second category is factor-based indexing. And factor-based indexing seeks to break the link with price uh, and use other mechanisms for determining diversification. Uh, And so they can use um, sort of fundamental factors like sales, net assets, uh, dividends, cash flow, these sorts of things, um, or, or other mechanisms. But typically they're... 
um, that they use filters uh, that it's uh, statistical and factual filters rather than subjective methodology. Uh, and the the best examples of factor based indexing are uh, fundamental indexing, um, which is put together by a, a US firm called Research Affiliates and Dimensional Fund Advisors are two of the ones that we tend to use, and they're they're um, got a good good um, robust methodology. And one of the benefits of factor based indexing is that quite often the people that come up with the ideas around the indexes uh, write um, papers for the industry. Uh, and those papers are, are critiqued, uh, peer critiqued. So people want to try and pick holes in them. Uh, and so there's a lot of transparency around the methodology. Um, and uh, then we get to see it uh, work in practice. The third category is equal weight indexing. And it's probably the most unsophisticated ind- indexing approach. And essentially what it means is that you invest, um, uh, you divide your investment by the number of companies that make up the index. So, for example, if you invest in the ASX 200, then one two hundredth of your money gets invested in each of those top 200 companies. doesn't make a lot of sense, um, but they're the three. So, just to recap, you've got traditional market cap indexing, you've got factor-based in- indexing, uh, and then you've got equal weight. Uh, so, it's really interesting, actually, to have a look at the performance of these different strategies over the last five years. Um, and uh, you will find a chart, there's a link in the show notes, but also uh, on the blog on the website, very interesting chart that compares on an index level, uh, so the relative level, how these uh, different methodologies have performed over time and obviously particularly during the coronavirus. Um, The equal weight index has won significantly. Uh, So uh, 4.7% compounding, uh, uh, to 18 June, so just recently, last Friday, in fact, when I did the numbers. Uh, then traditional market indexing did uh, 1.4% and fundamental indexing actually lost value, 1.6%. Now, that's just based on me charting the prices of these investments, doesn't include income. So, in, include income, uh, the performance uh, through to the end of May uh, was uh, nearly 6% for uh, equal weight, 4% for traditional, and about 3.8-3.9% for fundamental indexing. So um, still uh, significantly different, but closes the gap a little bit. Now, uh, you'd be excused then based on those stats for just thinking, well, equal weight is the highest, is the best way to go because it's produced the best returns. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you might have a basis for making that decision, but I would posit to say that uh, you really need to understand what's driven those returns and then you can decide whether that's a repeatable situation. So firstly, let's talk about why equal weight has beaten the traditional index. And really this comes down to uh, exposure in the banks or, and, and really how much uh, the big four banks really dominate index returns. So in the equal weight index, uh, 17.4% is invested in the financial services sector compared to 27% in the ASX 200. Um, uh, But that doesn't really um, tell us the full story because really within that 17 versus 27%, you have um, four businesses, the big four banks, that are really dominating those percentages. And the big four banks have fallen considerably over the past five years. So ANZ, NAB and Westpac, their share price has fallen about 43%. Dividends have come back too. 
uh, and CBA's uh, fallen 25% over that period of time. So given those four stocks constitute about 20% of the overall index, you can see how uh, then um, why uh, traditional market cap indexing has underperformed uh, equal weight. Now let's have a look at why fundamental indexing has underperformed traditional indexing. Uh, and the reason around that is it's uh, less exposure to healthcare. So um, in fundamental, healthcare makes up uh, just under 5%, uh, whereas in traditional indexing, it makes up 15%. And the main uh, cause of that is CSL. Uh, and fundamental indexing only has 1.2% of exposure to CSL compared to 82 in a traditional indexing. So why has fundamental indexing underperformed the traditional index? Because we're underweight CSL, essentially. And over the last five years, CSL's share price has increased by 230%, um, which is considerable, right? And it's the best performing sector. Healthcare this year, in the year to May 2020, has increased by 28%. Now, again, you might look at that and go, well, healthcare is a great sector, particularly during coronavirus, and it's a defensive sector. So if the economy slows down, that's attractive too. But you have to think about your starting valuation. You've got to think about what's driving these prices. CSL's PE ratio is 45 times, more than double the broader market. And if you think about the banks, they're trading at around sort of 14 or 15 times earnings, uh, you know, three times the valuation of the banks. So will CSL's share price increase by another 230? Will its PE ratio go to 100 times earnings over the next five years? Well, anything is possible. Do you want to take a position, a, a uh, an investment position on the basis that that is your thesis, that it will uh, produce? I would argue that you probably don't. Um, and so uh, equal weight has done better because it's had less exposure to the banks, uh, whereas arguably the banks are really um, quite attractively valued at the moment, uh, and uh, fundamentals underperformed because of CSL. I would posit to say that whilst if we had a crystal ball course five years ago, we'd go equal weight if we knew exactly what was going to happen in the market, but we don't. In the long term, uh, investing with sound fundamentals uh, makes a lot more sense. Now, there's a large amount of empirical evidence that demonstrates that um, that your starting valuation is a reliable predictor of your long-term returns. That is, if you invest when markets are cheap, you should expect above-median investment returns over the next 10 years. But the reverse is also true as well. When you invest when markets are expensive, very, very likely you'll receive below median returns. Makes sense, right? If you buy an asset when it's cheap, chances are you'll do well out of it. If you overpay for an asset, that's going to eat into your future returns. Now, over the past decade or so, uh, the market has rewarded growth investors. So, and, and as a result, it's punished value investors. You know, um, US companies such as Amazon and Tesla and Netflix are really great examples of this often trading at PE ratios of 100 times. I mean, Tesla doesn't even make any any money. Um, even Australia's, uh, there's an uh, unlisted business called Canva in Australia. Uh, it was recently valued, it did a capital raising, uh, and so investors valued that business at $8.7 billion, billion Australian dollars. Its annual revenues are only $50 million and it made 
$4 million of profit last year. So for a company making $4 million and it's valued at $8.7 billion, am I crazy or are these valuations insane? So at some point, the market will start to reward companies with strong cash flows, strong profitability, low debt, stable dividends, just sound fundamentals. And that's when the market will move from growth to value. And that that transition can happen very quickly. It can be a very sharp change. Uh, and and value investors tend, historically, tend to be rewarded very quickly for that. Um, plus also, it's great to look at some of the returns. You look at the NASDAQ, which reached a, a, a all-time high last week, uh, last night, I should say. Um, and you look at that and you go, well, that's good. The returns are good. But where is the risk? The risk is very high risk when the market is at its peak. Uh, so you've also got to then think about the risk in your portfolio as well. So I think then fundamental, what taking a position, a stronger position in, in factor-based investing at this stage, um, uh, more than likely uh, exposes your portfolio to higher future returns, but also uh, much lower risk. The other thing with equal weight is it invites you to take two positions. The first position is that um, what you're assuming is that recent winners or losers will cease winning or losing very quickly because what happens is that equal weight, the equal weight index provider reweights every quarter. So if you put $200 into an equal weight fund, $1 will be invested in Westpac, for example. Now, if Westpac share price increases by 20% over that quarter, your shareholding is now worth $1.20 because it's increased by 20%. But when the index provider rebalances, it's going to rebalance back to a dollar again. So it's going to sell down your Westpac exposure and invest more in companies that have lost money over the last, that their share price has fallen over the last quarter. Doesn't make a lot of sense. There's not a lot of logic behind this. Um, and uh, and so that, that strategy, not only is there a high level of trading costs, but uh, that strategy um, concerns me a little bit. The second one is, by investing the same amount in the top 200 companies, you're resultantly investing a lot more, proportionally more in smaller companies compared to the broad index. Therefore, you're taking a position that suggests you believe that small cap companies will outperform large cap companies. And there is some evidence of that, um, but it, that may not be uh, perfectly true if the economy weakens over time. Uh, so I would, I would, you might take that stance in a very strong buoyant economy, uh, but maybe not so uh, in this in this economy. So for those two reasons, I'm not really attracted to the equal weight index. Um, and in addition, I think there's been a set of unique factors over the past five years that have conspired uh, to ensure it's outperformed um, other more robust uh, strategies. And I don't think those things will be repeated. Uh, so many commentators, for example, think or suggest the big four uh, particularly NAB, ANZ and Westpac, and to a lesser extent CBA, a really good value at the moment. Um, and this suggests that, I mean, they suggest uh, that all potential risks are fully reflected in their current prices. You know, they're trading at very low PE multiples at the moment. And I tend to agree with this thesis. And therefore, um, uh, there's a very large body of evidence that suggests then that their returns over the medium term, say five to next five to 10 years, will be above average. Um, and so I'm not suggesting let's go and invest in the banks, but what I'm saying is if we're going to adopt a methodology that is 
um, has a greater exposure to the banks, I think that makes sense. And a lesser exposure to, to CSL, for example, I think that makes a lot of sense. So it's important to uh, remember that there's robust evidence that confirms that in the long run, market valuations and returns do eventually revert to their, re- their long term mean. So that is, um, if we are in a market that gives us very high returns, then it's likely that just around the corner there's a period of time where we're going to experience below average returns and the reverse is true. Now this assists us in forecasting future returns because if we're looking at assets that are um, attractively valued, then that's a good indication that in the medium to long term, we don't know when it's going to happen, but we know over the next five or 10 years, very, very likely that we'll achieve above average returns. Um, Modelling undertaken by research affiliates in the US suggests in developed markets, um, fundamental indexing will uh, outperform the index by around about 4% over the next decade, 4% per annum. So I'm not promising you a a 4% excess return, uh, but what I'm saying is if you look at um, five decades of evidence, or nearly six decades of evidence, I should say, uh, it's suggesting that uh, you know, there's a there's a large body of evidence there suggesting that's going to be the case. Might not be four percent, might be higher or lower, but there's some some level of outperformance potentially um, uh, on the table. So if you agree with this thesis, then perhaps there's merit in considering diversifying index strategies. And let's remember that diversification has proven to be a wise financial strategy in lots of different things. Diversifying geographical locations if you're a property investor geographical markets if you're a share investor and so forth. And the same is true. I mean, this extends to rules-based low-cost index methodologies too. Um, uh, That is, I believe that you should adopt, you've got to be very careful about which methodologies you adopt because there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there. Um, But uh, you should adopt some sound, proven methodologies, um, a, a diverse set of those, Uh, not take a massive bet in either one of them, um, but make sure you're skewing your portfolio to the methodologies that make the most amount of sense, that is accommodate the risks and opportunities in the market. And so that's not to say that traditional market cap indexing is dead, Um, uh, not at all. It's it's still very prominent in our portfolios. Uh, My point is that in certain markets, and particularly geographical markets, uh, market cap indexing is probably not the right approach. And at a portfolio level, at the end of the day, you want to have a diverse set of methodologies. So you're sort of taking a bet, hedging your bets, taking a bet either way. Anyway, as always, there's more information, links and so forth in the show notes and on the blog on the website. Uh, this topic is a little bit heavy, I guess. Uh, so if you need to learn more and uh, there's links to the various reports and data and so forth, um, uh, feel free to check them out. Uh, until uh, next time, next week, bye for now.